Do you remember your earliest dream? My earliest dream was about the rapture, which is probably all you need to know to know what my childhood was. <laughs> I have three early, early dreams about the rapture. I'll share one with you this morning. And those of you who are really drawn in by stories from my youth, I can share those with you after service. But in this particular dream, I'm seated between my parents at church on a Sunday night service. Now, when I grew up, we went to church, as some of you know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Saturday night. Once a month, we went on Friday night. And every spring and fall, we had revivals that lasted at least two weeks, meeting every night. Um, and, and then during the summer, we had camps. So youth camps, adult camps, boys camps, and so on. So I was in church roughly 475 days a year. And we, whenever we went to church, it was for hours each time, right? Like it took you an hour or two to get warmed up in the singing. Then the preacher preached for at least an hour. You wonder where I've developed all my bad habits as a, as a preacher. And then all of that was just prelude for the altar service, which was a time in which anything, truly anything might happen. And those are the really traumatic experiences from my youth. So in this particular dream, I'm seated, I'm probably seven or eight years old, I'm seated between my parents on the third pew facing the pulpit. It's a Sunday night service in my dream, and the preacher is preaching. So we've been there for probably three hours at this point. And suddenly two angels appear at the front of the, at the, front of the sanctuary in what we call the altar. And I knew they were angels because they looked Nordic, right? They were blonde and long white robes, winged, of course, and frightening, frightening. I mean, like, just imagine Vikings, but on God's side, right, and dressed in white. And so I'm terrified because I realized, and I still remember this so vividly, I'm wearing a brown-checked cowboy shirt with the pearl snaps, and the top pearl snap, not the top button, but the top pearl snap is unsnapped because I want to look cool. And I realized that this might keep me from going in the rapture, this desire to look cool. So you can laugh. I mean, it, 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 I, I'm seeing therapists about all this. No, no worries. So I'm rushing to snap this before the angels get to our pew. Right? Because the way that the rapture is going to work, in case you didn't know this, is angels are going to show up, and then they're going to go row by row. Right? So th those who are at the front of the church go first. Right? And, then, and they were literally sorting people into who would go and who, would, who wouldn't go. So don't just assume because you're in church, you're going to go. Right? So then they're, I'm worried that they're going to make it to my pew and that I'm not going to go. So I'm trying to snap it. Now, you know how in a dream where the harder you try to do something, the less likely it is that you succeed at it. So now my button is stuck. So it's not quite snapped, but I can't now undo it or snap it all the way. So I realized that by the time the angel gets to me, it's going to be clear that I was trying to button the shirt, snap it, but in fact hadn't done it. And I woke up terrified, right? Now, that is funny. I mean, funny in a kind of, oh my God, help him, Lord, kind of way, but but it, it speaks to something I think probably a lot of us share, which is the sense that the coming of the Lord is something terrifying, something than which nothing could be more terrifying. Right? I know that's what it was for me as a kid. One more story from my youth. There was, this was also a Sunday night service. It was during the altar service when, as I said, anything might happen. And we'd been there 
you know, a week and a half at this point or something like that. And everybody is praying and screaming. And there's a woman who's running around the sanctuary, like breakneck speed, running around the sanctuary, screaming, he's coming tonight, he's coming tonight, he's coming tonight. And little boy me is underneath one of the pews in the fetal position, like hoping that this isn't true, right? Terrified that this might happen. Now, I know that this is an extreme example, but be honest, there's a way in which what you've heard about the coming of the Lord, if not that, it's not entirely not that either, right? That there's a way in which the coming of the Lord is something that's utterly unsettling. As I got older, I can remember not so much fearing the coming of the Lord, but being afraid that the Lord would come back before I got married. And I'll let you read between the lines as to why that worried me. <laughs> Thinking like, Jesus, please don't come back yet. I mean, wait, wait just a few more years, right? But all of that aside, right? I mean, I'm, yeah, sorry for divulging my own trauma on you, but... But all that aside, in Scripture, the coming of the Lord is the thing desired above all. It is the hope of God's people that the Lord would come. The prayer of the prophets is, how long, Lord? How long before you come and set things right? And the prayer of the apostles is, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. So how is it that we've taught, and of course, I don't assume that all of you were taught that, but many of us, how is it that we've taught the coming of the Lord in ways that suggest it's something to fear, something to be, to be dreaded, or something that disrupts life as we want it? Right? Both of those are lies. The coming of the Lord is not something to be feared. It is our hope. To see him face to face is what we are created for. And, and it won't mean the disruption of life as we want it. It will mean the setting right of life as we need it, the fulfillment of our hopes for life. The coming of Jesus does not like put an end to history and now we all have to go to heaven and play harps and wear robes and be in church 24-7 as I was when I was a kid. Like that's not what, that's not what we're looking for. The coming of the Lord is the setting right of history. You know the famous line from Martin Luther King that... The arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. The coming of the Lord is the connection of history to the justice of God. It's the point at which history becomes what it's meant to be. So the coming of the Lord is not some interruption of a dreadful presence that ends life as we know it, and now we're being judged and exposed for all that we've done wrong. Another fear I had as a kid, I was told that everything we've done will be exposed to everybody else. And that at the last judgment, everybody will get to hear all of those secrets that I had kept all of my life, just announced, you know, not, not just to my family, literally all living beings would hear, you know, angels and archangels and humans and aardvarks and kangaroos, like all living things would hear. And then on that one Saturday night, Chris did this, right? And I, it, was, it was horrifying. What I realize now, though, is that the witness of Scripture is this is our hope. The coming of Jesus is our hope. It is not our exposure. It's not our humiliation. It's our glorification. It's our vindication. It's when Jesus stands up and says on your behalf, no, this is who this is. This is who I know her to be. This is who I know him to be. It's to have the truth spoken about you. And to have the truth spoken about you is to be set free, not to be exposed, not to be destroyed, not to be unmade in front of everyone, but to be shown to be glorious, to be shown to be loved. 
It's to have the person who knows you better than you know yourself and loves you more than you could ever love yourself standing up and saying on your behalf, no, this is who they are. This is who I made them to be. And, and, and to stand in that glory, right? So that, that's, that's our hope. So I want to today just look at a few of the texts that the lectionary gives us. Am I doing that? Okay. That is happening, right? Like, <laughs> I'm sharing my trauma and all of a sudden now I'm starting to hear noises. <laughs> So I just, I just want to, before I turn to the text, just to say, we need to reorient ourselves. I don't know. Should I try to turn this off, maybe? It's not, it's not the sound system? Okay. I'm a little rattled by that. Everybody okay? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. This, this hope that we have in, in the coming of Jesus. But what I, what I want to show you is that the coming of Jesus is not something always only out in the future. Another mistake we've made, not only have we made the coming of God something horrifying, something to be dreaded, and not only have we made it as some kind of interruption of history in which we're suddenly taken out of life and life as we know it is over, we've also portrayed it as something that's down the line, like either near or far down the timeline. So the Lord's not coming today, but he might come tomorrow. Thank you, Jesus. He might come tomorrow or the next day or 10 years from now. Or whatever. But that, that's also a mistake. The coming of the Lord is our hope. The coming of the Lord is not the interruption of life, but its fullness, being brought up into fullness. And the coming of the Lord is already happening. It happens at every moment, at any moment, in which we open ourselves up to it. So let's talk about that just really quickly. Let's, let's come back to the epistle for the day, which is Hebrews 10. And... Listen to what is said about the coming of the day of the Lord. Hebrews 10, this is the New Testament reading for the day. Hebrews 10, verse 11. Every priest stands day after day, ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, talking about Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit testifies about this. So Jesus offers one sacrifice himself once forever and is now seated at the right hand of God, waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. Therefore, brothers, verse 19, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus by a new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, our, heart, our, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who, is, who promised is faithful. And let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works, not staying away from our worship meetings, as some habitually do. Man, that's, that's one of the ways you know whoever wrote Hebrews was a pastor, right? Like he can't bring up church attendance without feeling a little bitterness toward those people who aren't here, right? Like, let's not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as some are always doing. Yeah. Not staying away from our worship meetings, as some habitually do. Not just they, you know, miss, habitually do, right? 
but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, again, we've said so much nonsense about this. I mean, what I was taught, explicitly or implicitly, is that Jesus kind of came and did what he did and then went back to heaven and is now out there somewhere in space, seated beside the Father, waiting on us to figure it out, right? I, I, I mean, more or less, I was taught that I live in the absence of Jesus, that Jesus is way, 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 way out there in space, wearing a robe like those angels that showed up in my dream, and also looking Nordic, no doubt, and seated beside the Father, and that whenever I'm praying, like my prayer is having to travel that distance to wherever Jesus is, and he's sending messages back through the Holy Spirit to, to act for me, and that he's there waiting, but just, just sitting waiting. He stood up once for Stephen, but other than that, He's, he's sitting there waiting. Those, that was a Ray Bolt's joke for those of you who uh, grew up in church. He's sitting there waiting for the end of everything, waiting for us to figure out what we're going to do, and then for the Father to say, okay, we've had enough. Blow the trumpet. Let's end this, right? Like, that's, that's the way it's pictured, but that's not at all true to what Scripture is saying about where Jesus is and how Jesus is. The right hand of the Father is not a place far off in space. God the Father is not an old white man who lives in the far corners of the universe. The right hand of God is this. We're seated in the presence of God. The right hand of God is a way of naming heaven, and heaven is everywhere. Heaven is the space in all spaces in which God's will is being done. Heaven is the space in all spaces in which God's will is being done. Jesus is there. So Jesus is here, present to us right in this moment, present to us in the way in which God's will is being done. And he's not waiting in, the, in that kind of doing nothing sense. He's waiting in the way that God waits, which is he's waiting to make space for what he is doing to take shape in our lives. Now, this is really important, right? Jesus is not a resurrected man living off in space somewhere, seated beside an older man who's a little bit bigger than he is, doing nothing while we figure it out. Jesus is here. He's right here. And he's right here making space for us to be who we are. For us to speak, for us to listen, for us to act. For us to be acted upon. The waiting of God is active. The waiting of God is a, is a way of being with us that draws out of us what nothing else can draw out of us. You know, you, have you ever been in a situation where someone really listened to you? Like truly listened to you? And you found yourself able to say things you, didn't, you, you needed to say, but you didn't know if you could say. This doesn't happen often. But when you are in the presence of someone who really is listening, they're not waiting in the sense of impatiently letting you have your say. You know, most of us, when we're talking to each other, we're not listening. We're internally preparing our response, right? We were interrupted earlier, and now we want to get back to what we were saying. So we're waiting for their mouth to stop moving so we can go back to what we were saying in the first place, right? That's not waiting, right? That's not listening, but when you really listen, or when you're really listened to, there is a kind of waiting that draws out of you, draws out of the depths of who you are, what it is you wanted to say and didn't know if you could. That's a way of thinking about how God is present to you. 
When God is, when Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, waiting until all his enemies are put under his feet, what it means is he's present to you in a way that allows you to be yourself. He's present to you in a way that makes room for you to be you, for you to say what you need to say, do what you need to do, to be at home with yourself. Jesus' presence is the kind of presence that enables your presence to form and it enables you to be yourself. So two, two passages. I'm gonna, I'll say something else about Hebrews 10, but let's go back a bit more to the Old Testament reading for the day, which is 1 Samuel 1. Everybody okay? 1 Samuel 1. And this is the story of Hannah, Samuel's mother, and her turmoil because she does not have a child. And it's a hilarious story. I mean, it's, it's only the Bible can tell a story about a woman who's barren and brokenhearted and have us laughing through it. Like there's, there's a kind of, um, I don't want to say sick, you don't want to say the Bible is sick, but there's a kind of dark humor about it, right? You should have laughed about that. It scares me that you didn't laugh about that. <laughs> like there's a line in here in which she's grieving, Hannah is grieving, and she says to her husband, Elkanah, um, about you know, how broken she is, and he says, why are you crying? Why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than 10 sons? Again, like, this just tells you, you know, that the thousands of years ago, husbands were just as clueless as they are now, right? Like, whatever evolutionary develop is doing, it's not changing that, right? right? Like, I, I mean, I, I, all of us who are husbands, uh, we need to laugh at ourselves a bit, right? Like, here's this woman grieving because, she, what? what are you, a child, you got me. Like what, what could be missing in your life, right, when you, when you have me? And I love the response to that, right? Hannah gets up and leaves, right? She's like, okay, I'm going to go to the Lord now, right? <laughs> maybe, maybe that's the way God works. Right? Like, he allows women to marry us so that they will be driven to him, right? Like, that's my primary task as husband, to drive my wife into the arms of the Lord, and so, so she, she goes to Shiloh to pray. And notice verse 9. Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorposts of the Lord's tabernacle. And this is the theme I just want to point out to you and then get out of the way. And that is this theme of sitting. Theme of sitting. Notice in Hebrews 10 that Jesus offers this one sacrifice and sits down and waits. So here, and we'll, we heard it in the gospel as well. I'll come back to that at the end. Here... Hannah is fleeing from her husband's compassion into the arms of the Lord. She's going to pray, and Eli, the priest, is sitting and watching, sitting at the doorpost. Deeply hurt, Hannah prays to the Lord and weeps many tears. Making a vow, she pleads, Lord of hosts, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forgive me, and give your servant a son, I will give that son to the Lord all the days of his life, and his hair will never be cut. While she continued praying in the Lord's presence, Eli watched her lips. I mean, I guess that's better than the alternative. I don't know. Like he watched her lips. What a strange, strange thing to do. Hannah was praying silently, and though her lips were moving, her voice could not be heard. Eli thought she was drunk and scolded her. 
how long are you going to be drunk? Like the men in this woman's life, right? Like I said, <laughs> get rid of your wine. I guess there were wine clubs in that day too. No, my Lord, Hannah replied, I am a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or beer. I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. And Eli responded, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant the petition you've requested from him. And she says, may your servant find favor with you. Then she went her way. She ate and no longer looked despondent. So notice here, here's Hannah. She's fleeing from the presence of her husband to the presence of the Lord. She gets in the presence of the Lord and she's pouring out her heart. And someone is there, the priest is there, sitting in judgment on her. Watching her and thinking, oh, I've seen this before. Here's another wine mom showing up at church. Woman, like... Put your wine away. And that, that kind of fundamental misjudgment about where she is. Now, let's come back to the gospel text. And I'm almost done. I don't know whether to be more annoyed with Jesus or the disciples in this moment, right? So here they are. They're, Jesus is, is in the temple. He's, in fact, leaving the temple. And the disciples are like, wow, look at this place. This is incredible. I mean, don't forget that the disciples are like I am. They're, they're from... I was going to say redneck, but I don't think you can say that. They were from like small town Israel. They're not used to being in impressive places, right? And so here they are in the temple and they're kind of wowed. Look at these buildings. Look at these stones. I mean, this is a great, gorgeous place. This is impressive. And Jesus says, you think so? Not one stone will be left on another. Now that's, that's a downer, right? Like here they are. They're in this kind of glorious space. Now, in Jesus' defense, not that you should ever have to say that, but in Jesus' defense, he's just shown them how the, way, the ways in which this temple was built by exploiting widows and exploiting the poor. And he's grieved by that. That's part of why he's leaving, the way that he's leaving. But then he's talking about the coming apocalypse, right? Not one stone will be left on another. And then these disciples, right? They're like... Wait till he gets to the other side of the valley and he sits down. And every parent knows what this feels like. Jesus is fine. He's just come through. I mean, he's been in this space, the temple space that he's cleansed. He's seen the ways in which it's being exploited. He's anticipating the end that's coming. I mean, it's weighing heavily on him. He goes across the valley. He sits down. And as soon as he sits down, the disciples are like, so tell us, when's this going to happen? Like, let us in on the secret. And there's a kind of morbid curiosity in their question. Like, okay, so all this is going to come down. Tell us about it. We want to be the first to know. Like, we, you know, this, they're, you know, this is QAnon for the first century, I guess. Like, tell us when this is coming down. Give us the inside scoop. Give us the inside scoop. And Jesus says, you need to be careful here. Because you're going to have a lot of people who tell you they have the inside scoop, but they don't. And they're going to lead you astray. And you need to know all of this is going to happen. Famine's going to come. War is going to come. The world is going to come apart at the seams. And all of this is just the beginning. And so, here's what I want to leave you with. The Christian life is mostly, mostly 
about how to sit with Jesus. It's not only that. Notice in the Hebrews passage, one of the things we do is we consider ways of provoking one another to good works. We are considering ways of being active in the world. And I don't want you to misunderstand me. You might anyway, but I don't want you to. It's essential that Christians are active in the world, that we are doing good, that we are saying what needs to be said, we're showing up where we need to show up. I mean, that's part of what we're doing today in a place like this. We're putting our body where our body needs to be. We need to be involved in reform. We need to call for justice. We need to care for the poor. We need to visit the sick. We need to be in prisons. All of that is essential to who we are. And one of the ways in which Jesus is doing what he's doing is as we take up those good works. There's a passage in the Gospel of Matthew where John the Baptist is in prison and he sends message back to Jesus. Are you the one or do we look for another, right? And Jesus sends word back to him and says, well, tell John everything you're seeing and hearing. The blind have their eyes open, the deaf have their ears opened, the gospel is being preached to the poor, and blessed are those who are not offended in me. Now, if you think about it for just a moment, this seems really strange, because John is in prison largely because of Jesus, and Jesus himself is the one who said that what you do to the least of these, you do to me. I was in prison and you visited me, or I was in prison and you didn't visit me. So it seems a little strange that Jesus gets word that John is in prison and Jesus doesn't go to prison to visit him. He doesn't deliver John from prison. He doesn't intervene at all. He simply seemingly dismissingly says, well, tell John, blessed are those who are not offended in me, which is, seems pretty passive aggressive, like deal with it, essentially. But, but that's not what's actually going on because Jesus is active in our acting. The mystery there is that Jesus is with John in prison. John just doesn't know it yet. And Jesus is in the disciples coming to John in prison. The disciples and John just don't know it yet. So part of what's happening in Jesus waiting is Jesus is making room for us to be ourselves. And so when we get involved in issues of injustice and brokenness, when we are in the hospitals, when we're praying for the sick, when we're listening to those who are hurting, we are the action of Jesus. And he's waiting in the sense that he's creating space for us to do it. But you will never be able to do that well if you don't know how to sit and wait yourself. There's a real danger right now for all of us. One is, in, in a time like this, I mean, the world is changing so rapidly around us, and I don't think we can even begin to estimate what this pandemic has done to churches, what this means for churches. And not just something like church attendance, but what it means for people who are thinking about what it means to be Christian, what it means day to day for how to be involved. And I think, and again, this is way overgeneralized, but just for the sake of time, let me say it like this. I think some of us feel as if, what's the point? Like what, what good is going to come from this kind of thing? And we see the, the scandal in the Catholic church, the, the priest abuse, we hear stories of, of preachers abusing their communities like we're, we're kind of flooded with stories about abuse and corruption and there's some of us are tempted to just throw up our hands and say what's the point like why why bother with church when that's what's possible and then others of us instead of throwing up our hands and giving up in despair we feel called to action we feel like what the church should be doing is acting in ways that intervene in the lives of people 
Like there are people on death row who need our intervention. There are people in the streets who are being abused that need our intervention, They're et cetera, et cetera. And, and there's a kind of pull toward activism. So some of us are pulled toward despair, throw up our hands, what's the point? And some of us are pulled toward the church is never going to be active enough. We need to get out there and change the world. But what I want you to hear is that you will never be able to be the presence of God and change the world in the way that only God can if you don't know how to sit without judgment. If you don't know how to sit and make room for others in the way that God is making room for you. Now there's a way of sitting that's despairing. A way of sitting that's dismissive. And then there's a way of refusing to sit. And what I think we need in this moment are people who say, Lord, teach me to sit, but not in judgment. So I leave you with this image. Eli is sitting, but he's sitting in judgment. He's watching this woman, this wine mom, and he's certain he knows what's going on. But hear me, you never know what's really going on. You don't know what's going on in your own heart, much less the heart of somebody you don't know from Adam. You don't know. I don't know. That's a mystery. Only God knows what's going on in the depths of us. You don't know yourself that well. You don't know anyone else that well. And part of what you have to learn to do is sit with that mystery and say, Lord, you know. You know what's happening in me. You know what's happening in them. And what's, what's glorious about this to me is the ways in which Hannah does not take offense Right? Here she is. I mean, her husband is a, is a husband, right? Well, what, do you, what do you expect? So she flees to the temple, but now Eli, the priest, is doing the same thing. It would have been so easy for Hannah to be like, I'm done with all of this. How dare you judge me? You don't know me. But there's no defiance in Hannah. There's no backlash against Eli. She just says, no, no, no. This is my anguish talking. And when he says, go in peace, she goes in peace. Now, how is she able to do that? Because she's learning to sit without judgment. And in the gospel for the day, what does Jesus do? He's, he's come through the temple. He's seen the exploitation of this widow. He goes across and sits down. And here come the, the, the QAnon disciples asking for the secrets. They want the email that's going to tell them what's going to happen next. The storm is brewing or whatever it is. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. You don't understand. You're going to be led astray if you're not careful. It's going to look like me if you're not paying attention, but it's not me. But hear this. When all of this happens, when the world as you know it starts to crumble... And not one stone is left upon another. And there's famine and there's war. You need to understand that's just a birth pang. That's just a contraction. God is being born. This is what it means to live in hope. Not waiting on a rapture that terrifies us. Not waiting on the end of history. Not afraid of that end or anxious for it but realizing God wants to be born right here, right now, in your life and in mine, in your family and in mine, in this city, in our schools, in our children's lives, in the lives of our neighbors. God is ready to be born. 
And when things are coming apart, what it means to sit with God and wait is to know that even when the worst is happening, it's nothing more than a contraction. It's nothing more than a contraction. Next week, we're going to celebrate Christ the King. You need to remember, when everything is going wrong, it's just that Christ is crowning. It's just that Christ is crowning. And have hope. Amen.